Welcome to Discovering Nutrition with Gronometer. I'm your host and community marketing manager, Elisa, and today we are thrilled to have on special guest, Jennifer Fugo. Jennifer holds a master's degree in human nutrition from the University of Bridgeport, and she is a licensed dietitian, nutritionist, and certified nutrition specialist. She empowers adults who have failed by conventional medicine to beat chronic skin and unending gut challenges. She has experience working with conditions such as eczema, psoriasis, rosacea, dandruff, and hives. And her clientele ranges from regular folks like you and me to celebrities and professional athletes. As always, this podcast is for general purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including getting medical advice. The use of information from this podcast is at the user's own risk and is not to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Let's dive in. So welcome to our podcast. We have Jennifer Fugo on here and we this month are discussing nutrients that support our skin and hair and nail health. And we are so thrilled to have on Jennifer. Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be a part of the chronometer community. I am a clinical nutritionist, but Aside from that, I had gut issues, eczema, I've had health issues. So I really do know what it's like to not be in my most healthiest self, my most healthiest body, and trying to figure out more alternative and integrative ways to try to get there. And so I have a master's in clinical nutrition, and I have a virtual practice where I see clients all over the world, most of whom at this point in time have chronic skin conditions like eczema, psoriasis, rosacea, dandruff, hives, that kind of thing. And it is amazing to me how confusing nutrition is, mm -hmm. even at the most basic levels, and how it creates this hurdle for some individuals to even just get started. It almost is like creates the excuse to just be like, ah, it's too complicated. I won't even get started. And I just really love connecting people with underlying root causes of what's going on with their health and especially their chronic skin issues and how we can partner that with not, you know, some people are on medications. That's okay. How do we, how do we meld together the integrative and the conventional to help someone meet their goals? So that's what I do. It's amazing because you obviously have education, but you also have the real life experience. So from what I understand, you were, you know, seeing dermatologists and not getting answers for your own eczema and then decided that you would take this into your own hands, which is so admirable and work on solving it. And what did, what did you learn in that process on a personal level? On a personal level, I learned that number one, you have to be an advocate for yourself. You cannot expect that every doctor is going to have the same answer. And actually, I say this for those of you who don't know me, my dad was an ophthalmologist and an eye surgeon. So I have a bit of an, I guess, an insider's take to growing up with a doctor as a direct relative. And I, we also had a family practice. And so I worked there as a kid and as an adult in my younger years. And so I don't want this to all, at all come across as like doctors don't know anything. And I know that somehow times how people feel when they go to the doctors and they have a chronic illness or they have symptoms that 
their labs look normal, but the symptoms are still there and they feel like they're being blown off. But the truth of the matter is you have to learn how to advocate for yourself, number one. Um, and there's nothing wrong with asking very specific questions. It's okay. Like with, for, for example, if you believe that you have all the symptoms of a skin infection, like a staph aureus infection or a strep infection or whatever, you can go and ask for a skin culture. You can ask for things. You're, sometimes your doctor may not always think of those things. I think there's an art too in how we ask. And that was something that I learned in you know, posing questions like, well, what do you think? Do you think a skin culture? Do you think this medication might be an option instead of saying, I want this, this is what I'm demanding. It keeps a good conversation flowing. So there is that partnership happening. The second thing I learned is that there really is a focus primarily on, at least in skin problems, blunting the symptoms that we have. And so most of the medications out there are geared towards suppressing the itchiness, the rash, the crusting, the whether, you know, if you have psoriasis, it's plaques, if it's hives, getting the hives to stop. So they'll try and load you up on antihistamines, any number of things. And the reality is that our body uses signals. And they're like smoke signals, so to speak. <laughs> so there's no like you tap your nose, spit out a tape, and here's what's exactly going on under the surface. Your body doesn't communicate in that fashion. In reality, what I had to learn was when there is a disturbance that I am aware of, I then have an I have two options. I either can choose to ignore it and assume that it's quote unquote normal and I shouldn't worry about it, or I can look and I can ask, is there something going on? Even if labs look normal, sometimes what is normal is not optimal. And that is also an area where, you know, my dad was a prime example and it admitted this to me. They didn't get nutritional biochemical training in how we look at labs. And so the way that I assess labs for nutrient deficiencies was very different from how my dad, who went to medical school, looked at labs. And so there's a lot of things that you can do. And I would just say whatever skin issue or gut issue or any type of issue that you have, I think it's so important to, to hold out hope for, you know, like when we lose that sense of hope that there could possibly be an answer for ourselves, that can be a really demoralizing place. And I've been there. I thought like, God hated me. I was damned. Somebody put the maloik on me. Like all these things went through my head, stories I told myself for why I ended up sick like this. And the reality was that my body was asking for help. And by addressing those things, identifying them, addressing them, um, that was where, you know, I found this beautiful partnership with my body, taking care of it better. And now I have this really great experience that I've been able to share with millions of people online. I think you're right that there's so many medications that are honestly readily accessible that can suppress these symptoms. But now I've I've seen some studies recently about the long-term use of things like antihistamine is is really bad for for cognitive cognitive disorders and and there there is something to be said for de just determining the root cause as opposed to just masking it basically. Exactly. So was nutrition something that you looked into in your own situation with your eczema? Is that something that helped you change how, how your skin looked and felt and behaved? So, yes, I was actually in the middle of my master's when this happened. You know, I was very demoralized. I was very depressed. I was like, I should just quit. 
I should just quit because who's going to want to, who's going to want to work with me? Like my hands are a mess. I had to stop. I used to teach like cooking classes at the a local community center. And I had to stop doing that because I mean, it was literally on the palms of my hands and I had to wear gloves. And then people were like, you cook that food with your hands like that. So, you know, it, it, when you have a very public facing mm-hmm. condition, people, especially with skin issues, people think you're either dirty or diseased. And they can become uncomfortable. Like people wouldn't want to shake my hand. So for me, I was like, all right, well, maybe I'll give this a try. I'll try to use the tool set that I have been training under to see what I can figure out. And admittedly, I did a ton of Googling. I had tried, I can't even tell you how many remedies. And like I was on a bunch of naturopathic websites. I tried all different sorts of things. Some things would help, some things not so much. In terms of nutrition, so at the time I didn't have access and didn't, this was back in like 2016. So stool testing wasn't it as, as advanced as it is now. I didn't do any testing. So I don't know the exact reason why. I mean, I can guess just knowing my case now, I can guess probably there was a lot of gut dysbiosis and all sorts of issues. But I tried my best to create this crazy protocol that I would not recommend to anyone because I know so much more now. And eventually after about a year, I finally did get the uh, dyshydroidic eczema to stop and my nails finally regrew uh, re-grew in a much more normal, healthy pattern because they had become very... Uh, nail nail patterns, when you have inflammation in the nail beds, can become... Your nails can get like... You can get ridges. You can have all sorts of like weird patterns that show up in the nail. And so they had gotten really destroyed from having the eczema in my fingers. And so um, that finally started to grow out more normally. And I have had a few recurrences of eczema, not on my hands, but in other places. And that's why I said, like, I, I think now, because I know better than testing, that there was definitely a gut microbiome component to that. But I just at the time didn't have access to that information. So do you think that there's particular foods that can, you know, activate skin inflammation or is it more a disturbance, like you said, in somebody's gut microbiome? I think that there can be, so there is a food piece. I want to be cautious here because I do think that one thing that we've tended to do, which I have concern about in the wellness industry is we put a lot of blame on food and there is an excessive amount of disordered eating patterns now as a result of that. And we're like, oh, you're eating that food. That must be the reason for everything. And that's not really the case. I think with chronic skin issues, we do want to look for IgE allergy reactions because that can certainly play a role. So having an allergy, an actual allergy, not a food sensitivity, not a food intolerance, but an actual allergy to certain food proteins. That can be a factor. Um, You can be sensitive to certain things. Uh, You know, you could be sensitive to dairy or different types of dairy, like cow's milk. You could be um, gluten sensitive and whatnot. Ultimately, what I'd like like to see in time is that as we address the underlying issues with gut function and the gut microbiome, usually those sensitivities reduce or entirely become eliminated. So it's not normal to see someone eating this extremely, and if this is you, by the way, I see you, I know, I understand, but to be like the healthiest sick person, you know, you're eating like this extremely limited number of very quote unquote healthy foods and you feel horrible, your skin looks awful, your gut's a mess, you don't have any energy, and you're like, why is this happening to me? Everybody else eats garbage, 
And yet I'm doing all the things I think that are right. All the books I've read tell me these foods are superfoods and yet I'm so sick. And so that's where, you know, a lot of my clients end up is they're down to like five or 10 foods, the same foods every day because they're afraid to eat other things they've read online that this is bad for eczema. This is bad for psoriasis. Oh, this is bad for the, and it comes to a point where, I think what we need to do is take a step back and say, is it possible that something is causing the issues with how our body interacts with the food, as opposed to fixating on the food being essentially an enemy, right? Because that's that's the language we use. It's toxic. It's inflammatory. It means that your body is at war with nourishment. And we just want to be really mindful of that because you might think you're doing the right thing by taking out all these foods and whatnot. But what happens with time when those skin issues say go away, the disordered eating patterns do not. And food is so crucial. And what I love is that in my practice, we work on reintegrating food back into our clients' diets. And the goal is to have them on a broad variety of different foods to help with diet diversity, because diet diversity means nutrient diversity and it improves uh, microbiome, gut bug diversity. So I just, and it makes you happy. It's, it's, it's nice to not have to like micromanage every little thing that you eat. Again, that's the aside here is the celiac disease and food allergies. But I, I do think, so yes, food is important, but I think if we just subscribe to the idea that it's all food's fault, that we have these issues, it's very short-sighted. You know, if you look at my podcasts and all sorts of things, I have identified 16 different root causes that can contribute to chronic skin problems. And usually people have a combination of three to maybe six of these. And that's why like one intervention who worked for like Susie might not work for John. And it's because their root causes are different and thus the solution for one will not work or might make the other person worse. Could you touch on a couple of those root causes that you see in your practice? Absolutely. Um, so the first, the first, and I always like, I have this like priority pyramid. And so the bottom is always like, these are foundational. They're very important. So gut function and liver detoxification. And, and actually, so from a nutrition standpoint, when I talk about liver detoxification, I'm not actually talking about doing a, de a liver detox. Your liver, specifically phase two liver detoxification, is highly nutrient driven. And they are nutrients that our body does not make. So if they're not coming in, because again, you started, oh, well, I noticed my skin gets better when I fast. So I'm limiting or restricting the amount of food that I'm taking in during the day, or I'm doing this crazy elimination diet. I swear my skin gets better when I do this, or I'm juicing or whatever we're restricting in some way, you are you're contributing to the depletion of these crucial building blocks. And so I liken this to Lucy and Ethel uh, from I Love Lucy when they were at the chocolate factory trying to wrap the bonbons, right? And so the toxins are coming down from phase, usually from phase one. So there's phase one detox, and then some of the toxins can actually kind of jump the line and go right into phase two. But everything that goes through phase two requires wrappers like the bonbons did and those wrappers are nutrients so if the pathways don't have those nutrients in order to process and make the toxins less toxic as well as being water soluble so you can essentially urinate them and pass them out of your system they can't go anywhere mm -hmm. so they hang 
hang out between phase one and phase two, sitting there waiting for the nutrients. So from, from my perspective, nourishment of that's appropriate for phase two liver detox is so incredibly crucial and oftentimes overlooked and ignored because everybody's like, oh, let me, I need to get milk thistle. I need to drink dandelion root tea. And I'm like, those are nice, but they're not the nutrients and the building blocks. And one of those and actually, a lot of people don't realize that we need amino acids in order to conjugate many of the toxins. One very specific amino acid is glycine. And glycine, well, there's a whole pathway, the glycine pathway. <laughs> and actually, if we take a step up to the next rung on this priority pyramid, we also have gut microbiome dys dysbiosis or imbalances. And so dysbiotic gut flora, especially when we have unwanted guests in our gut, they produce something called benzoates. And now you might be familiar with benzoates when you look at processed foods, you'll see potassium benzoate as something to help the food last longer, right? And so the organisms actually produce benzoates, which are then sent to your liver to be quote unquote detoxified down the glycine pathway. And it requires glycine to do so. So if you are now restricting protein or not eating enough protein. And you also have this huge load of dysbiosis in your GI tract. It is no shocker that you probably don't have a sufficient supply of glycine, at least glycine. I mean, there's the glutathione pathway, there's sulfation, there's all sorts of things going on here. You won't have the, the, the wrappers to actually deal with these toxins. And then we can look at thyroid dysfunction. You can look at mitochondrial dysfunction, blood sugar regulations, environmental toxins. I mean, there's 16. I could go into all of them, but I think it would take us a while. <laughs> but nutrition, you can see like nutrition is actually mm -hmm. kind of built into the foundational piece and food and diet is one, it's only one of the 16 root causes. I love that you said, first of all, that you don't really like villainize food groups because at Chronometer here, one of our core values is that food doesn't have morals. There's no good or bad foods. And we also believe in a very broad diet is, is always is always the best. But what's so fascinating to me is that there are so many cleanses and fasts, and those are really pushed towards people that are experiencing any issues, you know, mm -hmm. like... For me personally, I, I was having some gastric upset, like a lot of bloating and, and that kind of thing for a long time. And so I actually did an elimination diet. So to hear you say basically like that, that it's actually like counterproductive essentially is, is, is really interesting to me. So I, well, I, mean, I can also, I can also tell you too, that sometimes what's important. And when you have symptoms is to say why, and when do they happen? Right? So if someone tells me they have gas and bloating, I'd say, well, what food specifically caused that? And if you start listing out like FODMAP foods, I'm like, that sounds like we have overgrowth. Now, could you have SIBO or small intestine bacterial overgrowth? Possibly, but you can also have LIBO, large intestine bacterial overgrowth. So that's, that's one possibility. If you were like, well, alcohol seems to really like cause my skin to flare up, or I feel really drunk all of a sudden, like I could have very little alcohol that would, I, that would make me wonder, is there a fungal problem? So I think it's important. Again, if we just blame the food, we're, we're, we're saying, oh, it's because of the food. We miss out on the data that we can possibly gain and the insight that we can gain from 
the reaction that we're having. And simultaneously, if say you do do, uh, and I don't want anyone to feel bad for any of the choices that they make, because we do the best that we can, right? And oftentimes we read things online and we give it a try. If you also notice that things change, why ask why? So if you, for example, go plant-based and you notice all of a sudden a lot of your symptoms start to resolve, my first concern as a clinical nutritionist would be what's going on with your stomach acid? Because that's usually a sign, or if there's an aversion to meat, that's usually a sign that there's either low stomach acid and or H. pylori hanging out there. If, for example, you go low FODMAP and all your symptoms do a lot better, again, what's going on? Do we have some sort of overgrowth? If, say, you remove, um, like in the skin can skin community, a lot of, there's a lot of villainization of salicylate rich foods. Those are plant foods and salicylates are plant compounds that are kind of like a protective mechanism for the plant so that animals and such don't eat it. It's ubiquitous throughout the variety of plants and vegetable uh, vegetables and fruits and such. They're really healthy. And yet when people take them out, they're like, oh, I'm clearly sensitive to salicylates. I'm like, no, you're not. It's not a gut. It's not a food sensitivity. That means you don't have enough glycine to process salicylates because they get processed down the glycine pathway in your liver. So again, asking why helps us be more of that in partnership with our body as opposed to just saying, oh, it's this one thing that's causing the issue. I'm just going to avoid it. I'm kind of, it's interesting because I'm kind of in the middle of a journey that I should probably take, uh, I should probably hire you to to take with me because I, when I was getting these symptoms, I started using chronometer to pinpoint what food for me was causing an issue. You know, I did what I assume a lot of people are are going to do and use the internet and, and research everything. So I pinpointed that when I had garlic, which is high FODMAP, that my stomach blows up. So now I just simply avoid it at all costs. I didn't really dive any deeper to see if that's something that I could, you know, reintroduce in, in the future. So that's, that's so interesting that you say that. So if someone is having issues with a particular food, what, like, like in my case, I pinpointed it's, it is garlic. What would the, the next step for something like that be? Should I get tested to make sure it's not an actual allergy or should I eliminate it from my diet or what are your thoughts on something? Sure. Like that? So I think, I think it's okay in like your case, it's just garlic. Mm-hmm. Now I love garlic. I'm sure you'd probably love to reintroduce garlic. And it also has like wonderful properties for health and whatnot. So I think ultimately I would, although some people are like, I'm fine with not eating garlic, but I, I like garlic. I think ultimately the thing, if it's just like one food, it's okay to eliminate that on your own where it's more problematic. And where I think we cross the line is where we're eliminating entire groups of foods mm-hmm. and where now your diet is becoming extremely restricted. And if you want to try a cleanse or some sort of protocol you read about online, and if after two to three weeks, you really don't notice any improvement or you feel like you're getting worse, I would recommend at that point to speak with somebody. Um, Even with uh, the autoimmune protocol diet, um, if after like, I think it's three months and I've, I've interviewed different people who have 
recommended this diet or who people follow for this diet. And they've even said, if after three months, if AIP is not helping, it's important to go work with somebody. So if a food, like the one food, it doesn't sound to me, I could be wrong, but usually an allergy is more like when someone, like I had a client, she took eggs out because she read online that eggs were inflammatory for eczema. Her eczema didn't change after she took them out, but she left them out because she thought that somehow it would be helpful. And so a year and a half goes by, she starts working with us. And of course we want to start reintroducing a bunch of foods that she had took out. She tries eggs and her face blows up red. Her eyes swell, her mouth gets all itchy and her lips swell. I'm like, oh, you need to see an allergist. That's Mm -hmm. like, that's where an allergy, you want to differentiate between what's, uh, so just bloating may not be mm-hmm. an allergy. That may be more like what's going on with the food interacting with the microbiome <laughs> situation. Yeah. It's okay to take garlic out and then start sussing out the details of like what's causing that. Whereas if it's an allergy, you want to see an allergist or your doctor as soon as possible. You want to get checked for that because if it's serious enough, obviously you may need an EpiPen. Don't mess with allergies. That's like no joke. So I think in general, I don't mind like a few eliminations, but if you're if you're really cutting out a lot of foods and you're feeling worse or you know, ideally I'd love to see you be able to reintroduce it. I would just start asking why garlic's a high FODMAP food. So something could be going on that, like I said, could be LIBO, could be SIBO. I don't know. <laughs> There's something in there. You've been talking quite a bit about gut microbiome and I've done very small research on this. I've read a couple books, but that were so powerful. I feel like I finished these books, you know, I read fiber fueled, which is very centric on yeah. gut microbiome health and, and that kind of thing. Can, can you just explain to our listeners who might not know what that is, first of all, what it is. And then second of all, how you think it would impact things like skin. The gut microbiome is the the community of organisms that lives within our, well, I'm not going to say our, just our large intestine. It's, it's, it is all throughout the GI tract. We generally don't have organisms that usually live in the stomach, though H. pylori, which is an infection, though some argue it could be commensal, there's arguments on that one. <laughs> uh, but there are organisms that do live in the small intestine. There's a smaller number of bacteria and actually yeast. So candida albicans and other fungal organisms normally live in the small intestine. And then as we go further down into the large intestine, we'll see bacteria. You can potentially have parasites, sometimes viruses. I mean, it's a, it's basically like walking into a city, you know, and having this really diverse community. And what can happen with time is a, something called dysbiosis. So dysbiosis implies that there's an imbalance between what would normally be healthy ideally healthy or supportive of your best health and something that's like really flip-flopped where, you know, you have maybe overgrowth or excessive amounts of bacteria. You could have pathogens and organisms that are highly inflammatory and elicit an immune response that causes this whole cascade of immune um, messengers flying through the system Um, that can impact outside of the gut even. Uh, So like in a lot of uh, autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, celiac disease is mostly focused around the gut, though there are uh, extra intestinal manifestations of it. But 
you know, we think about it can impact your brain, it can impact your joints, it can impact your spine, like just various different areas, your your liver, your kidneys, what have you. And then the other piece to it is that we should live in this symbiotic relationship with this living, breathing, and actually there's more organisms living in and on us, bacteria, yeast, mites, et cetera, all sorts of stuff. Um, then there are human cells and we need a lot of them. Like we need the waste products of certain uh, bacteria that they produce, like they're kind of like quote unquote poop <laughs> we use as fuel. So those are short chain fatty acids. Then those like, especially butyrate can help fuel healthy cell turnover in the colon. It helps keep the cellular junctions. So we have one cell layer in the colon and we want those little junctions or where the cells butt up together to be nice and tight. And butyrate is one of the things that helps with that. And so a ton of things can happen with the gut microbiome that then impact the skin. There's actually a gut skin axis. And so um, it's not uncommon for clients that I see in my practice, regardless of whatever type of diagnosis they've been given to have some sort of underlying dysbiosis. It can look very different. Like some people have severe undergrowth because maybe they took a ton of, like, this is me, ton, took a ton of antibiotics. Like I said, my dad was a doctor. He gave me antibiotics all the time for everything. <laughs> I know in hindsight, he was like, yeah, that probably wasn't smart. We just didn't know that back in the eighties, you no. know? So is what it is. Here I am. <laughs> Um, but a lot there are people, and, and also I will say this, I think it's important to know this, the carnivore diet, while it can be helpful for some, it will, if you are on it too long and too long could be like six months will cause severe, severe depletions of all gut microbiome. So yes, symptoms may resolve, but you will end up with a parking lot of not a whole lot of organisms in your GI tract. And that is also problematic. That is not good. Again, this is, we need these organisms. Some of them make nutrients. They help us break down fiber and fiber is their fuel. I think that's one of the reasons that um, Dr. B wrote fiber fueled because as a gastroenterologist, he saw the power of adding in fiber and the general American diet <laughs> is not so hot on the fiber train. And so I can very much appreciate the fiber approach, but if you have overgrowth, I will argue that lots of fiber can cause problems. Or if you have overgrowth in different areas, it can cause problems. Again, asking yourself why. It may not be that you're ever going to tolerate it or normalize to it because you literally have gas producing organisms where they shouldn't be. So we have like methane producers, hydrogen producers, hydrogen sulfide producers, and those can cause other sorts of issues. So the gut microbiome is really fascinating to me. I love digging around and stool <laughs> tests and, and asking people all sorts of weird, random questions. And for those of you who have dogs, please stop letting your dogs lick your mouth. <laughs> Because that's a ripe recipe for getting a parasite, FYI. Good to know. I ask my dog for kisses all the time. Yeah, uh, not no, but you're out. Uh, just snuggle. Snuggles and it's, give me a lick right on the cheek. That'd be fine. 100%. So I love, because I have so many questions now when you're speaking. My my brain feels like it's firing, like it, light bulbs are just digging everywhere. 
Because I, I do know that antibiotics have been shown to, you know, deplete some of the good gut bacteria we have. And now oftentimes my pharmacist, if I do take an antibiotic, will recommend a pro or prebiotic or both, depending to try to, you know, keep it a little bit healthier. What are some of the things that can change our gut microbiome and how long does it kind of take to restore that ecosystem, for lack of better terms, to something that is more of like a symbiotic relationship with our body? So it depends. Depends on where we start, right? So maybe like for you and me, and I don't know what your, I don't know what your stool test looks like. I know what my stool test (laughs) looks like. For me, it's, I have the parking lot. So mm-hmm. I am very depleted. I tend to to be on that side of things. So I have to be very judicious when I, if do I really need these antibiotics? Like that is a conversation that I have to really think mm-hmm. through. And like, I got bit by a tick a year ago, had to do it, right? That mm-hmm. like, it mm-hmm. is what it is. But in the case of, if you already have depleted or very low levels of commensal or the kind of like organisms that you want living in your GI tract, it is a big problem. It can make things worse. And so in those instances, it may be more than just taking a probiotic and and even a prebiotic in conjunction with the antibiotic. Um, Just as a rule of thumb, you should always take your probiotics two to three hours away from antibiotics because that helps mitigate some of the loss that will occur from the exposure to the antibiotics. On the flip side, I have worked with clients that have such excessive overgrowth that one course, two courses, three courses of antibiotics doesn't do all that much. They are like, they could like donate <laughs> somebody else. They got, so this is where it gets hard. Like we have this idea that every person is depleted and that is not true. That's That's convenient. That's a really great narrative to tell a story about why we should do these things. But what happens to the person who actually has and legitimately small intestine bacterial overgrowth and or because you can have overgrowth in both the small and the large intestine simultaneously. And so I think the mistake that we make is thinking that one dose of antibiotics is going to bomb our gut and wreck it entirely. And that's not true. Antibiotics are specific to different organisms. And so they may be more specific for gram negative or gram positive bacteria. And we have to consider the symptoms. What if you do have severe GERD or heartburn, right? And it comes back, you have an H. pylori infection and you're having trouble eating. You can't even lay down at night to sleep because you start getting really bad heartburn. You're having loose stools, constipation, your um, hemoglobin. So that's the iron that our red blood cells use. So hemoglobin is how we transport oxygen and carbon dioxide around the body. Uh, So your iron levels are starting to drop. Your B12 is dropping. At that point, you're uncomfortable. You're having symptoms. Like I would say, maybe you really should seriously consider the antibiotic therapy. Um, There are other options. And so there are botanical options, but botanical options will also deplete your gut microbiome as well. They're not without side effects, right, that we don't want to hear about. However, herbs have an interesting synergistic effect. So when I say herbs, I mean herbs that are used therapeutically for like certain different gut issues. So some herbs are interesting because they'll get rid of certain types of bugs, but they'll also increase Mm -hmm. other types of really good commensals that we want. So it just your approach 
depends on your particular circumstance. It also depends on your health values. It depends on your symptoms. Um, because too, like for example, to go back to the H. pylori, if you try to do it the natural route, you're looking at possibly two to three months. Do you think the person who can't stomach protein that can't is anemic that is in a lot of pain is going to take two or three months to hopefully make sure that it clears because it might not there's there's failures with both options there can be in that instance maybe uh, and the pylori triple therapy would be a better option so i think it's just important to have an honest conversation without the shame Mm -hmm. of you're you're harming your body like they all cause harm we have we we have to you know, like, so just figure out what's best for you and do your best to, you know, if you know, you're going to take some antibiotics and say you you're like me, you have the parking lot scenario. When I was taking antibiotics, I was doing heavy duty probiotics, like a hundred to 200 billion CFUs a day. I was doing tons of FODMAP foods, lots of extra fibers, like sun fiber, for example, which is hydrolyzed guar gum that helps support the healthy gut, other different fibers that are just proven to help. I I mean, I was doing everything that I possibly could because I knew my circumstance. So I know nobody likes to hear it depends, but it depends. Well, everything is so individualistic and Mm -hmm. there's preferences, but then underlying issues. And one of the questions I have, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but there's a lot of topical solutions for a lot of skin issues. Mm -hmm. I remember reading a statistic, which may or may not be factual about how quickly things that we put on our skin are absorbed into our bloodstreams. Is there the same long-term or short-term ramifications to using something like that for for our insides as well? Or or is that something that people... Do you mean like a topical antibiotic versus an oral antibiotic? Or like a steroid or something to clear up a, a skin issue? There are different medications. They have different actions. And a topical antibiotic, as far as I know, and I'm not a doctor nor a pharmacist, so I... I may be wrong on this, but I don't necessarily imagine that there's going to be a more systemic impact. Usually I think it pretty much just impacts the skin if it's a topical antibiotic as opposed, and there actually are, uh, rifaximin is the one antibiotic that's used for small intestine bacterial overgrowth, and it's very localized. It does not leave the GI tract. So we there are different options, and then I think more most antibiotics are more systemic when they're taken orally, but rifaximin is one that is a bit different. In terms of topical steroids, steroids, well, it depends on who you ask, but everybody that I have interviewed, including doctors, including hormone experts, have all said the topical steroids do, specifically the steroid itself, does get absorbed through the skin. So steroids, the one that is most commonly known is hydrocortisone. Mm -hmm. So hydrocortisone is man-made cortisol. So you have cortisol, your adrenals produce it, and it's one of our stress fight or flight hormones. And so when you are chronically applying that to your skin, it disrupts this beautiful signaling that we need, that we rely on through the HPA axis or hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal axis. And your body's like, oh, there's extra cortisol here. We don't, adrenals, like you can kind of like dial it back. And with time, especially as the potency of the steroid increases. So for example, I believe clobetazole is like six times more potent than hydrocortisone. 
as you get more and more with with the amount of topical steroids and potentially the area that it's being applied to and the number of times a day or a week that it's being applied to the skin, that can actually cause a level of suppression within the HPA axis. I'm not going to say it's a suppression of the adrenals specifically because that would be Addison's disease and that's a bit different. So this actually disrupts the HPA axis and can trigger something that currently is being described as topical steroid withdrawal syndrome. It's not an official medical diagnosis yet, but there are there is a team of physicians, dermatologists and allergists that are actually working on diagnostic criteria for this. So does that mean that you should avoid, right? Because that sounds kind of scary. Does that mean you should avoid all steroids? It depends. And it also, so there's no, there, right now, there's not enough research to know what the magic number is that trips this process into happening. So for example, I use topical steroids. My dad told me to use them sparingly on my hands. So I was trying to use it like every other day, every three days, and just like the tiniest amount that I possibly could. I never ended up with with what we call it for short TSW. But then you have moms that are applying it to their babies. They don't have eczema, Mm -hmm. but because they're applying it, they get exposed to the steroid and end up with TSW. The child can end up with TSW. The amount of time that it takes for that HPA access to correct can sometimes be months, sometimes can be years. I've even worked with some clients who have been going through this for up to eight years and it can be debilitating. So I think we should take a harder look at what we're putting on our skin, but we also have to understand the action, right? The antibiotics do something very different than a steroid does. And now in, at least on the dermatology front, there are biologic drugs, there are JAK inhibitor drugs, there's more serious drugs aside from the the more like common immunosuppressants that were being used. And I, I think I think this is important to be said, you are not a bad person, You are not a failure if you need to use medication to help manage your symptoms. I think that people need to hear that. And you're also not a failure if you do want to work on the more integrative route. You really believe in that. You believe in nutrition. You believe in herbs. You believe in all this stuff. But you also at the same time need help with symptom management because your symptoms, no matter what skin condition you have, are severe. And many of the times you can blend them together. And I don't think, what I don't like is the shame that's placed within the wellness world. We're like, oh, that's toxic. We have to detox your butt. And you feel this level of shame and failure. And the reality is you're never going to get back the time with your kids playing outside with them and seeing if you can't leave your house, if you can't be a functional human being, if you can't go to work, you're never going to get that time back. And I have worked with clients in my practice and we do these things together, these therapies together. And you can, I have had clients who get off the biologic drugs and whatnot and don't flare again. So I just think it's important that people know that they have choices, that they can be blended together and whatever you choose to do is okay. It's your journey. It's nobody else's business. Absolutely. There is a lot of shame just in the health and wellness, as you said, in general, everyone does different things. And I think we should all just support each other's decisions. You know, it's our bodies and and our choices. Ultimately, I just have one more question before we wrap up. How does someone go about actioning this? So we have Sarah, for example, and she has eczema and she wants to do something differently or get to the bottom of this. What is her first step in in your mind's eye to start treating this? 
My first step would be to, I love glycine. So glycine powder is awesome. It's an amino acid. I've talked about it of a ton. So you can go get glycine powder on Amazon. If you don't have like a, you know, a natural store near you, I would, I would actually start including glycine powder into your diet. It does, by the way, taste sweet, but there's no sugar in it. It's just a sweet tasting amino acid. Um, So some people will actually use it as a sweetener. And so you could start off taking something like maybe two or three grams a day, just adding that in. And the reason I say this over collagen, because yes, glycines and collagen is that most people are so depleted, they actually need additional supplemental glycine. We haven't seen improvements with people doing it from this like, oh, I want it in a whole foods form. I'm like, that's great. But I haven't seen anybody actually make an improvement like the way we've seen people who take glycine supplementally. So that's number one. Number two, I would start asking more questions than just, I have eczema. What does your eczema present as? Are there other symptoms in your system that you've probably blown off or your doctor told you didn't matter? Start looking into them. Start asking, is it possible that they're connected? I also think it's worthwhile to consider if there are any possible allergens, like, or maybe you're you're using laundry detergent that you got on sale. I know that that's most of the things people usually go through the process and clean out pretty quickly is their detergent, their body care products and cleaning products. But it's always worthwhile to consider that even something like like seventh generation has some chemicals in it that some people do actually have allergies to. So you can't assume because it's like a green brand and I'm not, I'm not saying they're a bad brand, but like you can be allergic to natural things. Mm -hmm. I've had clients that are allergic to zinc, to gold, (laughs) to, to nickel, to all, to oats, like to all sorts of things. It just, it just happens. And so I would start digging around. Um, I also do, I have a, root cause rash finder that like has these 16 different columns that you can go through and check off that helps you bring, helps bring awareness to people's bodies and the connections that they're like, what is the root cause, right? What is the issue or the issues? And this oftentimes helps because it focuses you're like, oh, I didn't realize that this cluster of issues that I'm experiencing actually indicates a possible gut microbiome problem or a liver detox issue. And then from there, in all honesty, aside from cleaning up your diet, increase your protein to a minimum. Use your chronometer <laughs> and start tracking your diet. Because this is what I recommend everybody in my group program do is track your diet for three to five days. Be very honest. Don't, don't worry about the calories. Just look at the grams of protein that you're taking in. And if you're not taking in anywhere from at least 70 to 80 grams a day, it's time to really up that amount because you need the protein in order to heal your skin. You have a higher burden. It's almost You're not a burn victim, so I want to be really clear about that, but burn victims have to consume higher amounts of protein because they need to heal this tissue. And the same goes for damaged tissue and all the other things, the neurotransmitters, the hormones, the enzymes, all the other things that we need to make. And again, to feed the phase two liver detox. And then also thinking about gut function. Are you pooping three times a day? If not, start working on that. A lot of people are constipated. (laughs) And this is actually part of our phase three liver detox is pooping. So it's also gut function, but it's it's like the, the, the bridge to liver detox as well. And those are usually the places that I encourage people to start. And then if they have want to dive deeper into it, I've got I think we already said I'm closing it on 300 episodes of the Healthy Skin Show. So I've got loads of resources for people that want to dive deeper on it. And on that note, 
tell us where we can find you so people can learn more. So I, um, I hang out. I should say that I hang out on Instagram. So I'm Mm -hmm. at Jennifer Fugo, my name. I'm, that is the thing that I'm like on quite frequently, but the healthy skin show is a podcast that comes out once a week. So you can go to healthyskinshow.com. You'll see all of the episodes. I have full transcripts of every single episode as well. If you prefer to read, or if you're hearing impaired, it's wonderful. And it's available on YouTube as well. The video version of the show, and we are on all podcasting platforms as well. And if you go to healthyskinshow.com, that's where you'll find my website. And if you're interested in getting help or just diving into my many resources, everything is there for you. You have been a wealth of information. I got some homework on my own health to do now. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute honor. Well, thank you for having me. Have a great day. What a great episode. Thank you so much for being here, Jennifer. If you're struggling with gut health challenges or chronic skin issues, I encourage you to follow Jennifer. She's got so much amazing advice. If you love this episode, we hope that you'll subscribe to Discovering Nutrition with Chronometer and we'll see you next time.